Welcome to the Spirit Anointing the Word, the podcast of Highland Church, Jamaica, New York, with Pastor Subash Cherian. We're so glad to have you with us today, and we're excited about God's Word because it gives us strength and hope for each and every day. Let's listen as Pastor Subash shares this powerful message. Father, we're so grateful that we can gather here this morning. We come, O oh God, to seek your forgiveness. We come, O oh God, to again ask you to cleanse us, particularly as we come to the Lord's Supper. We want to commemorate what it means to us and how a planet in rebellion has come to that place of salvation through grace for all those who look to the Lamb. We're grateful to you, Father, for you love us, that you sent Jesus, and we're so grateful for our Lord and for our Savior who died and was buried, and the third day he arose. We're grateful, O oh God, for your love and for your goodness to us, and every day we enjoy your goodness and your mercy. So we come, O oh God, to recognize your goodness and mercy, and thank you for so much you have done, and most important, who you are, your greatness, your power, omnipotent, omniscience, and omnipresence to us, and your words are immutable. We come, O oh God, seeking your grace today. Touch lives, precious people that are in ours, and those many that are online, and many watching some way or the other, that you reach out to everyone here. Meet, O oh God, at our point of need. Touch, Lord, and bring us closer to you, to the cross, and to you, Father and that you be able to, O oh God, meet needs, touch lives, spirit, soul, body, bring healing, bring deliverance, bring salvation. And Father, we just give you thanks because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's people said, amen and amen. Give the Lord a clap offering. Welcome everyone, particularly those that are watching whatever day it is, whichever time it is, but we're so glad that you are able to join us and if you could just share this message, if you're on you, uh, uh, Facebook, and if you could share this and tell your friends whether you're watching on YouTube, it's so great that we could gather here this morning. And those of you who are here, just continue to just thank God for God's goodness and God's grace and God's mercy. We began with the fall and particularly the rebellion which took place in heaven. But I want you to understand the ramification of what took place, a battle in heaven, a losing battle, and how the enemy so conniving has created such a mess that it has come down from heaven to that pristine garden in Eden and then into the lives of people. Begin with an animal, a serpent, and then moves into the first man and woman and continues to plague mankind. Not only that, I want to just say it touches precious people of God, particularly God who reaches out to people and calls them, chooses them, they too become special target of this one that is a rebel. When we turn to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7, we're told there was war in heaven. And this, I told you, is a war that was lost. He was, Satan and his host uh, were cast into the earth. And there in the pristine glory, when God put man into that garden, he began his warming his way. And I want you to realize before I go through all of this, why would he do this? Why would he reach out to the first man? Why would he try to wreck things that in that garden? I'll be talking, and this is where my main thrust is, and I talked about particularly about the throne room and how it has impressed me in the last couple of months, and it becomes so important because it means so much, not just to my life personally, but to the congregation. And I want to just refocus particularly on the throne. And the one that sits on the, on the throne that we find in Romans chap Revelation chapter 4 and verse 2. And particularly to the Lamb that is there in verse 6 of chapter uh, 4 and verse 6. But what we want to recognize is coming to that throne is so important because it has so much to do with our future. I mean the throne, particularly when you realize as you go to the last book of the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 1, just imagine what it would be if it can be imprinted in your spirit. 
And he showed me a pure river of water of life as crystal, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. So out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, Lamb, it is uh, pure water, as clear as crystal, proceeding. And when you turn to verse 2, and verse 3, we don't have time, that it reaches out and brings healing. But it reaches out and brings fruitfulness. It reaches out and brings blessing. It is so powerful, it is so tremendous. If you turn to the chapter before in Revelation 21 and verse 22, you find an amazing aspect of what it tells you that from there's no temple but the Lamb and the, no temple and the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And out of that temple comes the light. And I want you to realize we're talking about the temple, the body, which is the ultimate, without forgetting that it begins with a temple in the Old Testament and then comes to the church. I cannot tell you how horrible it has been because when you look what Ezekiel writes it was in the worst of times comparable to the pandemic. And there was a large number of people leaving and, and backsliding. In the midst of all of this, God showed a wonderful uh, act of his mercy because in chapter 37 you find the value of dry bones and that was how futile the people and the nation were. And then he said, can these bones live? But when you come to chapter 47, it has to do with the temple. So when you read chapter 47 of the book of Ezekiel, you find he brought me again to the door of the house and water issued out from under the threshold. Of the, and then the water goes down and wherever the water, there was fish and life and vegetation and fruitfulness. It begins uh, slowly rising up to knee deep and then waist and then finally all over that people can experience and flow in the goodness of God. Again, what Ezekiel was saying is God telling the importance of the center that is the temple. In the physical aspect, literal temple, which was uh, Moses' tabernacle, now become David's temple and, uh, and uh, Solomon's temple much later. But what you're going to find in the New Testament, it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the temple, and translates into each one of us, the temple of the Holy Spirit, again telling us of what would be figuratively the church and the gathering of ourselves. And I, like I mentioned, pandemic has done a horrible situation, taking people away from church, and many people feel that uh, we can have church by remote control or through various online means. No, nothing can take the place of the church. So chapter 10 and verse 25 tells us in Hebrews, don't stop gathering as the manner of some is. Why? Because before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's very important. Coming back to the water that flows, you find it comes to a place where we have to wade in and experience more of his goodness and afraid to move further into what would be waist deep and then ultimately swim totally in the goodness of God. There's going to be something, of, something that we cannot even imagine. So the book of Revelation talks about the close uh, aspect of it, and the water speaks not only of the Word, but specifically of the Holy Spirit. You can read that in John chapter 7. Jesus talking about the water from, uh, from out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. And to the woman, the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, for in verse 14, the water that I give you, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. So when you turn to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Those that are athirst, come and let him, let him that hear it come and let him that is athirst come and whoso will let him take of the water of life freely. What I want you to imagine in this imagery that you find in the book of Revelation is something that speaks volumes of the amazing aspect of God's goodness, God's mercy, God's kindness, and God's abundance that comes, that flows from the door of the temple. The devil knows that. The devil ne never gets, his, and his cohorts never get to enjoy the privilege and the blessings that we would enjoy in the book of Revelation, the last book and the way it closes. The devil has no part in the blessing. 
And when you find that there was a war in heaven, it's a matter of making his throne higher and greater than God's throne. So in the book of Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 13, the second part says, and I will exalt my throne about the stars of God. This seems to be an epidemic that he seems to have in touch, injected this, uh, this uh, unbelievable contagious disease all around where he goes. I will exalt my throne. I want you to understand God has given to every one of us a throne and a crown. A picture of what would be the ultimate throne and the crown. I find that in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 4, talking about the 24 elders. They had chairs. They had thrones. But I want you to realize what they do. They get off their chair and fall down and cast their crown before the Lord. It tells me that these 24 would be a picture of the church, the Old and the New Testament church. And what you find is the 24, that is the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles, recognizing that they represent us, fall down at the feet every time his name is being worshipped and we cast our crown before him. We will always exalt the one that sits upon the throne and the Lamb of God. Nothing can take his place. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all the other things is, is follows after, but nothing can take the place of the number one. That being said, I want you to understand the battle in heaven comes down to earth in that pristine, glorious place. And the way Genesis chapter 3 begins after this marvelous in, uh, way in which chapter 1 and 2 says, now the serpent was more swift, crafty. And it simply says, subtle than any other beast of the field. There's nothing wrong with the serpent. We hate him because of what Satan did. But really, this is one of the beasts. Now, whether the serpent can speak or Balaam's donkey can speak, but I want you to realize something very important is, here is the enemy, Lucifer, now called Satan, comes into the garden and now takes over a beast, a snake, a serpent, and now takes over and possesses that serpent and impersonates that serpent, so to speak, the voice, and yet it becomes the voice, that communication, the message, of Satan to Adam and Eve. It was almost like a compromise where the first thing he does is questions God what God said so. You shall be as gods. Take him off your throne. Make yourself. Remember, man was under God, the vice regent under God. What a great, grandeur position. And yet bargaining that he falls and gives to Satan, hook, line, and sinker, what was the throne under God. And God basically reaches out in redemption, but the terrible tragedy of what would call rebellion spread on planet. And when you find it spreads uh, such a tragic situation, in fact, Jesus our Lord talked in John chapter 14, verse 30, as this is the Satan's word, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, that this is the prince of darkness and uh, how he controls. And again, when you realize that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, he's the God of this world. He has blinded the eyes of people. So we come to realize by sheer abdication or default, man gave this over to Satan. What we need to realize is God has saved us saving us and continue to save us, but we are saved spiritually, born again. But the full anticipation of emancipation takes place when he will come. But in the meantime, we are here to, to conquer and to stand forth and to be able to resist the enemy, submitting ourselves first to God and to be able to keep and continue to endure till the end. What you find is here the serpent takes that the, the, the devil takes over and the serpent is able to deceive the first man and first woman. And thus continues the saga of deception lies to take away 
All that God planned for us in the book of Revelation chapter 20 to the ultimate enjoyment with God. And the Bible says God abides and he tabernacles with his people. That's not the Old Testament. That simply means he is the one that is with his people. And there is joy forevermore. There is such sweet pleasure forevermore. The devil can't enjoy it, but he makes sure nobody else gets into it. And he tries everything to do, and he wins in the Garden of Eden. I want you to know that from the beginning, you find Operation Rescue. And you find that God covered the man with the lambskin, and you find blood was shed, talking of a picture that you find, as picturically that you see it in Exodus chapter 12. The Passover ultimately finding its fullest expression when John the Baptist said in 129 of John, Behold the Lamb of God, and in chapter 19 of John, the Lord Jesus Christ gives his life on the cross. What I want us to understand in this battle, the enemy will reach out not just to God's choices, Adam and Eve, but think about it for a moment that I will be speaking about the ultimate would be in the Revelation chapter 22, and I'll be talking about chapter 47 of the book of Exodus, that he talks about how the out of the temple of God, from the door comes the water and frozen, and we are able to be blessed abundantly, and yet I want you to understand the enemy doesn't want to enjoy that, us to enjoy it. He never got to, he never could be intimate with God, he was what would be, that was his job, but he could never be, as man was, intrinsically connected with the Creator because of the Lamb of God. And he will do everything to mess things up. This morning as we take communion, I want us to realize the people that he touched, not in the Old Testament alone, which I will talk in a moment, but even the New Testament. Particularly when you think about a man that the Lord Jesus Christ chose, a man that went about preaching, a man who cast out demons, a man who did amazing work among the 12 people chosen of God, that God lifted him up, chose him, appointed him. And yet when you read John chapter 13 and verse 2, I want you to realize what it happens here. And supper being ended, this is the Lord's Supper. This intimacy with the Lord. The devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. It's just a suggestion. But I'm going to tell you in the next couple of verses that you find that how that simply not a suggestion, but it becomes so strong that it goes into his heart and into his mind, and Judas literally gets possessed. It's hard to explain it because we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, that we are the temple. It tells us that uh, the demons come, and yet when we allow him, I, for one, do believe with so many that when we are in the hands of the Father. We're safe and secure. Our salvation is secure. While I believe in that, I also believe that if you keep biting the hands of God, spitting at God, and simply start to do all you could, you can hold your little pet, if it's a pet squirrel, and you could hold him. You're not going to drop him down, but if he starts biting you, cutting you, you have to release. So at least that's what he does, jumps out. It's not that you released him to the wilderness, but he got himself out. God does everything to protect us, but here was Judas who opened himself willingly, consciously, and with his own volition, with his own volition he jumped out to the grace of God. And what a tragic situation you find. But if that's not all, Satan reached out to someone very precious to God as well. And what you're going to be surprised is he was able to touch Peter. And when you turn to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 23, listen what Jesus is addressing. And he turned, that's the Lord Jesus, and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. This is after a great revelation in chapter 16 and 15. Whom do you say that I'm... And in verse 16, Peter says, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And then the Lord Jesus Christ says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this, but my father, which is in heaven. That's a great revelation. Blessed are you. But then when you come down further, 
he is prompted of Satan to say when Jesus says the ultimate for him to come was to give his life and Satan said, and here is this man impressed by Satan to say, no, we will not only to go to heaven, yeah, to Jerusalem. And Jesus said, get thee behind me. Now, if you think about the two of them, I'm going to explain next Sunday, which one of them the worst? Was it Judas or was it Peter? Hang in there just a moment. It is Peter. I will explain why. And yet, Peter becomes the leader. Judas literally loses his position and becomes the son of perdition. But I want you to realize what takes place is here in these passages in the Bible, Satan is like a lion. He goes about seeking whom he may devour. And the Bible gives us so much defense to protect our mind, our brain, our heart mostly, and to protect ourselves with a shield and also with the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. These are important part of our defense mechanism because God has given us everything available. But I want you to realize every time you look in the Bible, you find how Satan comes to bring rebellion in home, in the marriages, in the relationship with a son or daughter or the parents, and then in a society, in a church, in a nation. And you find this is what he delights in, but most importantly, he delights to wreck the lives of precious people. And what is so important is the choice that he makes is the most important. A choice that David make, unlike his son Absalom. A choice that Peter made in spite of the terrible tragedy of the abyss of what his heart was doing. And yet, becomes a leader of the church. Unlike Judas, great noble, the very fact he comes from the tribe of Judah, whereas the others were not from the tribe of Judah. Such great status, such great lofty calling, and yet lost out because he gave himself to Satan and all that Satan has. Satan not only brings a planet in rebellion and a world in rebellion, but hearts, our hearts and our own planet between our two years in rebellion with God. And we need to understand God has given us word, God has given us power, God has given us this armament so we could be protected because he wants us to enjoy all of that he has for us in heaven. Now, when, when you go through the passage, you're going to find that, yes, Satan reached out to David. I want you to realize there's no one that you can think of more beloved than David. Long after he's dead and gone, in the book of Acts, Stephen says he's a man after God saw not, repeating what is said in the Old Testament, which means long after he's dead, he's still considered a man after God's own heart. And yet I want you to understand how he went out after David. You know, when you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2 and 3, you find the amazing aspect of the worship of God Almighty from the heart of this man, David. He was rescued out of the hands of Saul who was pursuing him. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, and goes on with it. A great testimony of, of triumph, praise to God who saved him. And then in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, verse 2, uh, verse 1, look at it, says, he says, now be the last words. Now he's coming to the close of his life. David, the son of Jesse, and look how he's described. He says, an anointed of God, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And he talks about what's in his heart before he dies. But now he's old. And you would have thought he is now so mature, the older we grow, sometimes the more vain we become. I've seen and heard of people that have been used mightily of God, and in their maturity they thought, they thought Satan would not strike. And right there, Satan struck them. It's always, understand this, the more you grow in God, the more the greater the trial and temptation. So you're going to find there's never a rest 
until you go to heaven, you will always be uh, basically tried to be uh, taken away by this, uh, the, the enemy of our soul. When you turn to 24, the next chapter, here this man is so amazing. But look what happens. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them. Go number Israel and Judah. Why would God do that? No, God allowed it. In fact, a clearer picture is in First Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1. And listen to what it says. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. No! From the beginning, God had told David, it is not by the numbers that you will prevail. That was proven. With 300 crack team, he was able to face the power of Israel's army under Saul. And they were afraid of 300 of David's men. And they were not trained people before. They were the scums of the earth. People who were in debt, people who were running away, they came and David formulated and become, and they trained to be the finest. 300 could defeat the Philistines, could defeat Saul's army. Now he has an army. He is basically the king. And in the last days, he becomes so vain that he says, go number. But I want you to understand, when you turn to verse 2, Joab, he says, no, don't do that. And when you turn to verse 3, verse 4, you're going to find uh, in, in verse 4, the word of uh, David prevailed against Joab. Wherefore, David departed and went through all and came to Jerusalem. And so the counting, why not counted? Because even David's testimony was, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord. That's how he fought Goliath. But now at the greatest of his eyes, he took his eyes of God and took it in the arms of the flesh. When you turn to verse 7, look what happens. And God was displeased with this thing, therefore he smote Israel. Now you think that is the end of this man. This is what is so amazing. No matter how bad, and I want you to realize this, we're all frail people. Every one of the disciples were frail just like you and me. Every one of the great men and women of the Old Testament and the New Testament were frail just like you and me. But the enemy will come and he will look for that weakness, the area that we would fall apart. And when you look at the great men that were with, uh, with David, even Joab, or even the priest Abiathar, they fell apart towards the end. When you look at the temptations, the trial of these 12, you know the sons of Zebedee, they had to basically battle anger, fiery anger. When you look at Thomas, doubt. When you look at Matthew, hey, he was a tax collector. He wanted more than his share. They all battled that, and Judas was greedy. Peter was heady-minded. Even though everyone will fail you, Lord, I won't. I'm that good. They all had that vulnerable point, and Satan knew exactly where to strike them. And he never stopped doing that. But what is so remarkable about David, and this is where I want to close with, it doesn't matter how far you go. And in essence, what Peter did was even more grievous and more serious than what Judas did. But why is Peter become a leader and Judas lost out? Exactly how and what happened to David? Why is he a man after God's own heart? Let's go to verse 4. And it says the anger of the Lord that we just read before and God was displeased, and therefore he smote Israel. But when you come down into verse 8, listen to what it says. David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I beseech you, do away with the iniquity of your servant, for I have done foolishly. When we come to the communion, I want you to understand the Lord Jesus gave Judas such opportunities. He beckoned him closer to him. 
And I want you to know, in the Middle East, if you come into a home, you're the guest of the home. You protect the guest. But much more than that, if you were to enter an altar outside, it means you are part of the family. But if you were to sit in a meal, it simply means you are part of the closest. And here was the Lord Jesus Christ giving the sop or the bread to the one closest to him, Judas. The opportunities he got, he never repented. David did. Peter did. The big difference. As we take this bread, the opportunity for us not to examine someone else says, let us examine ourselves. See if there be any sin. And we do. In our thoughts, in our mind, in our deeds. And say, Lord, I plead the blood. I ask you forgiveness, Lord. Because I could fall. If not for the grace of God. Thank God. We have opportunities that we can come to God and say, I've fallen short of you. Let's read that verse, verse 8 again. And this is, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I beseech you, do away with the iniquity of your servant. That's not the only sin. He called Uriah. He went down to Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And yet he's considered a man after God's own. Why? When God accounted him, there was no sin. It was covered by the blood. I repeat that again. It was like, just like it didn't happen, justified by the blood of the Lamb. You got to give a clap offering for this. But yet, when you look into the family, even of David, people who sat under one of the greatest kings, People who were closest to the king. What a mess. They had opportunities. Let me talk to you about Absalom. If you were to go into Second, king, uh, second Samuel chapter 15, reading particularly from verse 1 onwards, it came to pass that Absalom prepared in chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. You know the sin of Lucifer, pride. And that's what God says in chapter 28, until sin, iniquity is found in you. Goes on to say in that passage in chapter 28 of Ezekiel, you had pride. And look what happened here. He went into the heart of Absalom. Just an amazing kid. The most handsome, with such heavy hair, beautiful to look at. He had all the blessings, but it all happened because he was offended. And he was offended because his sister Tamar was raped by Amnon. Amnon is the first eldest boy, and the father didn't take action. So there was anger in the heart of, the, of Absalom. He had every right to be angry. You can be offended, but don't let that cast you away. Satan uses that. And what happens to this man? He took vengeance rather than wait for it. And he completely killed the firstborn. Amnon took vengeance. And then David cast him out. And then through Joab prevailing, he was brought back into the kingdom. But the father never spoke to him. The Bible says the father loved him and yet had a hard time communicating with him. One of David's fault was he was the greatest man of God. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel, we learned. And we learned that he's the blessed man that sang songs and psalms, but he was a lousy father. He never disciplined his children. He never spoke frankly and said, you know what? I want you to understand, parents, you are in a position where you don't negotiate. It's a hard task. You are not being elected by your children to be father and mother. You've got to be blunt and say, excuse me, I love you. But because you love your family, you must be honest. It can be difficult. David never did that. Never did that. He loved Absalom. You can read that again and again. David loved Absalom with all his heart. 
and never communicated that. And then when there was a full-blown-out rebellion, when Absalom totally, completely ridiculed him and raped his concubines on a mountain where everybody could see, and Joab was seething with anger, this is the word he said to Joab in front of all the army, do not kill my son. What love! And yet, he never corrected his son. Never said to Amnon, what you did was wrong. And never told Absalom, what you did was wrong. And in the process, here is a man you find working his way because there is offense. Matthew chapter 24, verse 10. The words of Jesus Christ. He says, and then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Excuse me? Offense and not because of your fault. Maybe you didn't win the lottery ticket. You're offended with God. Maybe you didn't get the promotion. Maybe someone in your family walked away or your spouse walked away. You're offended at God. Or maybe you did not get the job. You're offended. But yet, many will be offended. This is Matthew chapter 24. is talking about the last days, the days in which we live. Talking about what will happen. Nations against nations and so forth. And he says they will betray because of offense. And they will hate one another because of offense. David went through that. Peter went through that. They conquered it. The Lord God said, even to Cain, sin lies, an offense lies right at the door, waiting to crouch like a tiger. But you can conquer it, or it will conquer you. I'm paraphrasing. Cain was offended. Two brought their first fruit. God liked Abel's but despised Cain. And Cain was so angry, so offended, he killed his brother Abel. And yet God reaches out to him and says, sin lies at the door. Be careful, Cain. I love you. You can conquer this desire or it will conquer you. It's left up to you. Cain lost out. No one is perfect. We are all frail. We all have faults. We will fall. But I want you to understand what Peter did was to realize there's one who can forgive, the one who split his blood, and God can still love me if I confess my sin. And every time we go to the community, remind yourself, this is the great opportune moment. Not to examine your neighbor, but let a man examine his own life and seek forgiveness. Because I have sinned, you have sinned, we all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. When you look again at Absalom, coming back to 2 Samuel chapter 15, and reading verse 2, Absalom rose up early morning, and now he has a plan. In verse 3, what does he do? He says, see, the matters are so uh, right, but there's no one. My father doesn't seem to care for you. Verse 4 goes on to say, if only I could be the judge, I would have done. What's he doing? He's playing the word Absalom. In verse 5, he goes on to say, if it's so, when men came to him to do obedience, he went forward and he was playing the diplomat, kissing them. What was he doing? Telling my father doesn't do that, but I want to do it. There's all a reason for it. When you go to verse 7, look what he does. He says, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vows. Comes up with a plan. And the next moment, he's sending out spies. He's sending out people to go out and, and, and basically bring in the reward. Satanic to the core. When you turn to 12, it is so tragic. Absalom sent for Ahitopel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from the city. Why? Absalom knew something. 
a very intimate family secret. Aitopul's son is Alton. And whose daughter was Bathsheba? Remember? David had killed Uriah the Hittite. David went into Bathsheba. And God struck. God had judgment. The sword never left David's house. But God forgave. Because David cried to the Lord. For God it's like nothing happened. But Ahitopel had such an offense against David. And this is the time and opportunity where David, the Jonathan reaches out to Haithopal, David's counselor, and the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continuously with, you got the big pen working out. And thus begins what would be a tragic situation that takes place. Suffice this to say, when you turn to chapter 18 and verse 2, you're going to find David's men threefold, they're three, under three parts, Joab and his brother, which is Aisha, and again a Gideonite, Ithai. They form under David, and they finally go out, and they defeat Absalom. But the word was, do not touch my son Absalom. But he was such a disloyal man. So Joab took into his hand to take him by his own sword and by his own spear in the sight of all people. And when David heard about it, he was so angry. And when people came back, David was weeping. And what was his word? Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom. If only I would have given my life for yours. Joab said, what's going on here? This great victory has been swallowed up by grief because of your son who created so much rumpus, who has cost so many lives. Joab is offended. I'll come to that in just a moment. Let's go down to Joab. He comes and basically end of Absalom. That was not God's plan. But now I want you to understand in 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 5, you have the, fourth, the third son, Adogina, the son of Higeth, who exhorted him, excuse me, didn't you see your brother exhort himself? Didn't you realize that comes from the pit of hell? Oh, I'm sorry, from heaven, when the rebellion took place, I will exalt my throne. I will be someone. I will ascend up to the height and I will sit on the most high mountain and make myself God. Adhajana, the son of Haggad, exhorted him, said, I will be king. And he prepared the chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him, blow the trumpet. But how does this chapter begin? First Kings chapter 1, verse 1. It comes at a very difficult time. Now David was old and stricken in years. And they covered him with clothes and he got no heat. Olden days they didn't have heater system. So they brought a young virgin woman and he gave, she gave him heat. But there was no sexual relationship. You will find Abijah trying to marry her and that's the end of this life. But how does it all begin in verse 5? Blow the trumpet, send 50 men, I'm exalted. Why? Because you realize his father is sick, this is the time to take over. When you turn to verse 6, look what happens here. And his father, listen to what David, had not displeased him at any time, just like he did to Absalom. David, you are not being elected a father, you are elected a king. Why don't you tell these children? Oh, I don't want to displease them. Discipline. And God disciplines only whom he loves. He doesn't discipline the others. And if your parent disciplines you, it's not because they hate you. They want the best for you. The father had not displeased him at any time, saying, why hast thou done this? And he also is a very godly man, and his mother bare him Absalom. He comes with a good thing but never disciplined. The father never sat down and said, listen, Absalom, I love you, but don't do this mess. 
You got hate, you got offense, you got in your heart. This is tragic. Whoop, he killed. And what you find in verse 7, listen to this. He conferred with Joab. Oh, Joab. Whoa, this son is coming too. He goes to Joab. Why, Joab? Like meets like, Joab was offended. The day when Joab did his job as a loyal citizen and army leader, instead of being a great day of success, it turned to mourning. And Joab, why did you kill Absalom? Because he was a no good son. I told you don't kill him. How dare you touch my son? And also in the process of time, he was demoted and Amasa was made to be the chief general and Joab was very angry with the choice and he killed Amasa. From that day onwards, he hid this instead of conquering it. When you read the life of Joab, what an amazing man. He had so much good quality. He kept David from falling. They were cousins. And yet Joab could never conquer the offense. And Joab reached out and, and became part of the great army of this man. And not only that, he conferred with Abiathar the priest. Why? Abiathar was there when David was in difficulty because much later Abiathar's heart grew cold. And here, David reached out and put a greater man, a priest, Zodak. And you can read about Zodak and the sons of Zodak and the priestly ministry of Zodak. Abiathar had offended, was offended, and he waited for his time. And so, here you find this young man reaching out for Joab and Abiathar who helped him. And this was a great confederacy. When you turn to verse 8, you're going to find, and Zadok the priest, and Zena the son of Judah, and Nathan the prophet, and Simeon Reen the guardsmen of David, and the mighty men which belonged to David, they were not invited by Adojonah. When you turn to verse 9, again you find Adojonah, in verse 10, go into verse 10, you're going to find Nathan the prophet, and Benad, and the mighty men, and Solomon and his brother. He called not. Why? Because Nathan was the true prophet. Benaiah, he was not in his light, but he stood with David. And if you have to touch David, you have to kill Benaiah. Think about it, he's non-Jewish. And then Benaiah stayed all the way. And in the end, when the king said, I don't want you to retire, Benaiah said, what is it? Anytime you need me, call me. But I'm going back to my people. My art is always there to yours. And what you find was, and Solomon, his brother, he called not. What you find in verse 11, you think it's a conspiracy, but look at what it says in verse 11. Therefore nothing spake unto Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Hast thou not heard that the Jonah, the son of Agit, dot, and David, our Lord, knoweth it not? The man is sick. So in verse 12, he says, you go, and, and, and I will give you counsel. You go and speak to the king. So when you turn to verse 14, Bathsheba goes and says, King, this is what's happening. My life and my son's life would be in jeopardy if you die. Now when you turn to verse 22, while she was still speaking, Nathan comes to the, the Nathan the prophet comes and says, King, what she says is right. In short, what you're going to find in verse 32 the king, they told the king, and David said, call Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the son of Jehudah, and they came before the king. In verse 34, you're going to find he's acting here. Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow you the trumpet and say, God save Adogina. No. Solomon. Why is Solomon? Why not Adogina? Solomon was at the kid. Solomon is not that mighty man yet. The reason is when you turn to first, Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 24 and verse 25, 
This is the time when the child was lost, Bathsheba comfort, and David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and, and lay with her, and she, and she bare a son, that's the second child, and called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. Why would the Holy Spirit write this? Then when you turn to verse 25, God called him a name. And he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name, that is God called his name, Jadira, beloved of the Lord. When you turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 22 and verse 6, you find again in the Chronicles, and he called for Solomon his son, and charged him to build a house, this is David. Not Adogina. But when you turn to verse 9, this is God speaking. Behold, a son shall be born unto you, he says to David, who shall be the man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. Adijuna know that. And so did Adijuna. They knew that. And in spite of it, a rebellion takes place that was quelled. In the process of time, I wanted to know these were great children. Whether it's Absalom or whether this man, unfortunately, offense became so big that is not God's desire. Again, let's read Matthew chapter 24 in verse 10. In our day, in our time, many will be offended. Chapter 18 and verse 7, offense will come. Be sure about it. It's going to come. Every one of you will be offended. Now I wanted to read something very important about Judas. Let's go back to Judas because we are going to break bread. When you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 2, at the breaking of bread, what we are doing, first, I'm sorry, John chapter 13 and verse 2. Listen to what it says, supper being ended, that is, the man just had communion, intimacy with the Lord. This is someone called by God. This is someone chosen of God, like Peter. But he's closer to the Lord because in verse 27, he gives him bread. Only the very chosen gets that privilege. Let's go to verse 2 before we go to 27. Supper being ended, the devil now come and put into the heart that is suggestion. Listen, this is wrong. Jesus should be taking care of Rome and stopping and plunder and totally destroy Rome. He must bring Israel to the glory days and everybody else are dogs. We are the most privileged people. He was a zealot like Simon. But Simon was able to conquer that, but Judas wasn't. Judah comes from the greatest tribe, Judah. And deep in his heart, more than kingdom of God, was patriotism, was culture, was his party more than God. And so he was saying, I'm offended. Why does not Jesus knock down Rome? What's going on? And he's offended. At this point, Satan is putting suggestion. You cannot stop the birds from flying over your head. You cannot spend the entire day chasing birds. They're always flying. But you can stop the birds from putting a nest on your head. Thoughts come, thoughts go. Everything in your mind. Satan drops seeds. The Holy Spirit drops seeds. Your friends and your enemies drop. And the mass media drops seeds. But it's whose report will you believe? When you now come to 27, look what it says. From suggestion, it becomes an active, full-grown rebellion. And after the sop, that is the Lord Jesus Christ had handed the right-hand man the bread, Satan entered in. Excuse me? Satan entered in? Of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Of course, Paul goes on to say we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Of course. And yet the Lord held on to him, spoke to him. 
lovingly. And when you go back to verse 27, the Lord Jesus simply realized that this is what it is. Coming to John chapter, yes. And Jesus said, whatever you have to do, do it quickly. It's too late now. You're taken over completely. There comes a time that no matter how much you do for your family, how much do you do for your children, there comes a time you cannot take that responsibility. You've got to say, you're old enough. I have to release you. Maybe like a prodigal son, you will come back. Now I have to just release you to God. Who knows? Let your heart not be hard, may it be soft. But what will you do? Do it quickly. And the next couple of verses, for 30 pieces of silver. This was the soft place in Judas's life. Money and the greed of money. John chapter 12, when Mary was oiling the feet of Jesus, the people are looking at profound loyalty and love of Mary to Jesus. But here is Judas calculating, excuse me, how much is that? What, $25,000? This could have been given to the poor, like he cared for the poor. And the Bible simply says, because he loved money. At what point the point of trust turns to a point where you love money? And so when you look at what Judas is opening himself, and he's offended at Jesus, look, we have all the means to destroy Rome. You've got the power, you've got the anointing, you've got work miracles, we can do great things. Judas, you've lost your call. It is to save life, not to build a platform, not to build a government. It's not about Republicans or not about Democrats. It's not about Asia or not about Africa, not about the West. It's about the king and his kingdom. When you turn to Luke chapter 22 and verse 3, again, all the gospel writers say, and Satan entered into, Jesus, into Judah, surnamed Iscariot, being of the twelve. Twelve called out anointed people. Even Satan tempted Peter. And Jesus said, get thee behind. That is so humiliating after being blessed. But Peter cried, repented after he had done something horrendous. Let me just remind you what Peter did. When you turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse 70, nothing compared to what Judas did. But he denied them before them all, saying, I know not what you say. Because Peter was saying, what's wrong, Jesus? You're supposed to handle this. You let these people spit on you, let these people scourge you, what's wrong? But in verse 72 comes the worst part of Peter. Again, he denied him with an oath. In other words, he cursed like a fisherman. You know, in modern day, a curse like you would like you hear the movie, and this is a born-again spiritual man, and with a curse saying, I know not the man. That is unpardonable, I think. And yet Peter is chosen. Excuse me? He was chosen among the greatest. On the day of Pentecost, he stood up. And then from then on, you hear about Peter, the great fisherman, the great legend. So many universities and hospitals named after him. He wrote the book, number one, Peter, number two, Peter. What a man. What made the difference? Exactly the opposite of Judas. Peter said, and he cried, and he wept with a godly sorrow, and godly sorrow, First Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, turns to repentance. Yeah, Judas cried. Not for anything, but he cried because, oops, I betrayed innocent blood, but never turned to God. There's something else about Peter that you need to know that Jesus would have done it for Judas. We don't have time. John chapter 21, verse 14, 15, 16, 17, three times he denied Jesus. Three times the Lord asked, Peter, do you love me? I love you, Lord. Do you love me? I love you, Lord. Do you love me? I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Whoa! That is the measure of God's grace. Nobody is outside God's scope of grace and salvation. 
When you come to this man, listen to what it says in John chapter 13 and verse 18. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen. Talking about Judas. But that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. That is what the psalmist David, the Lord Jesus' great, 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 great father, wrote, when Paul was one that broke bread with him, and David broke bread with Ahithopol, and lo and behold, Ahithopol is the one who gives the suggestion, this is what you need to do, Absalom. Take your father's concubines in open sight and humiliate them, rape them. The advice he gave was even more, just go down and slaughter every one of them. Oh my God. And this is what David writes, and that is found in Psalm 41 and verse 9, with the Lord Jesus Christ is quoting, Yea, my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted which did eat my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Yet Judas did not do as bad as Peter. What made the difference? Peter repented. Judas did not. When you read Luke chapter 22, Matthew chapter 26, you're going to find the amazing aspect of what God reaches out to Peter, even though he did the worst. Because there is mercy. There is grace. What you find in an amazing way is God reaching out to every one of us. We all can be offended one way or the other. We presume God will give everything to us and we may not get all of that. We're offended. Our love for God becomes less. And the Lord reaches out and comes to us in our morning hours and I waited for you. Where are you? He comes to embrace us, we're not there. He comes to feed us with his word, we're not there. We're too entangled with the word because we got disappointed with God. Now I want to realize this is part of so many testimonies across the world among Christians. I want to just say something very important. The way that you can protect yourself in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, it says, God, keep your heart with all diligence. This is important. Guard your heart. Why? Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful about all things and desperately wicked. I was a second man before I became a senior pastor. I had people coming in, oh, Pastor Subhash, you don't understand. We prayed so much and God has brought you. I said, for what? God wants you to take over. I said, listen to me very carefully. I am frail, but I'm not stupid. I'm a year post and a signpost, and whatever you say, I would be telling the senior pastor. I'm here to help him. I'm here to cover him. Not one time. No matter how much I could have been offended, I chose not to. And this is the reason, my friend, that we need to realize we all can be offended, but God is gracious. Amen. Number two, I want you to realize a very important James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourself to God. And then resist the devil and he will flee from you. Something that's very important is Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. And this is our prayer. Lord Lead us not into temptation, because I could be led into temptation. Lord, deliver me from evil, for thine is the kingdom. You are the king. Yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory. Lead me not. It's so possible to be led into temptation. Keep me from temptation. And if I fall, I come to you in forgiveness. And keep, deliver me from evil. Keep me. Deliver me. And then submit to God, resist the devil. There's something very important we need to realize. There are times our prayers for others would be answered. But when it comes to ourselves, may not. Don't be offended. Paul had prayed for people left, right, and forward. And yet, three times he sought that God 
would take away the thorn of flesh. It didn't happen. Do you know something about Paul? God said, I kept this so that you would be humble and not be proud. One of the things that Paul learned, and that you can read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, and this is most important, he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for you. Wow. With all that's happening to Paul, he was never offended with God. He said, this is what God said. I'm not going to answer your prayers for healing or whatever it is. The thorn of flesh will remain. It'll keep you from being swell-headed. I want to use you, Paul. And God did use this man. This is so important, particularly when we realize we can go through life with offense. Every one of us can. And as we take this bread, this is very important. When you turn down to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 24, as often as you eat this bread, you take this cup and show for the Lord's death till he comes. And listen to what he says in verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat and drink of that cup. An opportunity for us to say, Lord, have I put you on my throne? We battle this every day. Or is it the television on the throne? Is it me on the throne? Is it my friends on the throne? Is it my games on the throne? Did I cast my crown before you? Who is the Lord of my life? Remember, it started in heaven. Remember, it came in and despoiled the garden, the couple that was there. Remember, it reaches out to the best and the finest of God's people. And this is important. Examine yourself. I could fail, but for the mercy of God. You could fail, but for the mercy of God. Turn to the Lord and ask him to forgive you. That's why as often as we eat this bread, why we need it so often, and drink this cup, it is God's mercy, God's mercy, God's mercy, and that is what he did for David, that he did for Peter, that is what he did for me, that is what he does for you. Can you say amen? amen. Shall we stand as we take of this? And if there be any offense, if there be in any way that we have offended God, or we've been offended, go to the cross and say, Lord, you are number one. Seek first. You're not number two. You're not number three. I may have put self. I remove it. I may have put my favorite sport, but no, you are back as number one. You will always be number one till your kingdom come and I be part of that great part of the plan of God. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're constantly showing the Lord's death. He died for me. Even though the planet in rebellion, I was in rebellion. God saved me. And God continues to save me till the day of his return. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the blood of Jesus. Shall we eat? Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that you've been encouraged by the word of the Lord. To learn more, please visit our website, highlandny.org, or our Facebook page, Highland Church, New York. Until next time, may God richly bless you.